helping make work more meaningful yeah. you know helping the the work become more meaningful for employees by you know ensuring everybody is healthy and so far as possible uh, enjoying work you know a lot about how to design jobs so that people find the jobs uh, enjoyable or manageable and I think that some of the the organizational uh, behavior theories can help us design the jobs that include artificial intelligence and machine learning so that they're still rewarding you know because we spend a lot of time doing this don't we hi i'm david green and welcome to episode two of season 20 of the digital hr leaders podcast you just heard nigel gunnell director of research and ethics of the institute of management at goldsmiths university of london and a former colleague from our respective time at IBM, talking about how the discipline of organisational behaviour can improve work and the jobs that we spend so much of our lives doing. Nigel talks passionately about the value of organisational behaviour on three levels, for effective people analytics, for data-driven HR, and for the enterprise as a whole. So I think that it can elevate the discipline and just uh, make it uh have more of a serious impact and the same I don't want to go this far but look how seriously we took all of the scientists in COVID you know I think that if we kind of really major on the behavioral science and HR analytics it will just kind of elevate the messaging that, that we have there and um, on an organizational level yeah it can certainly help drive organizational performance there is yeah. uh, there is no doubt that if you set that up right you can show uh empirically statistically that these uh approaches when you implement them well lead to uh greater organizational effectiveness throughout the episode nigel and i discuss how the field of organizational behavior has evolved over the last few years what the value of the field is to the enterprise and what some of the new opportunities are we look at the capabilities that companies should build in organizational behavior and how to do this. And we also look closer at some of Nigel's recent research, looking into emerging analytical methods, the skills identification, and building a skills ontology. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Nigel Gunnell, Director of Research and Ethics for the Institute of Management at Goldsmiths, University of London, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast, and our former colleague at IBM. Nigel, it's, uh, it's great to, to, to have you on the show. Can, can you provide listeners with a, with a brief introduction to, to you and your work? Yeah, it's great to be here too, David, talking to, you, uh, talking to you again. So my background, I'm an industrial organizational psychologist. So I work on uh, measurement of individual differences, which is like the knowledge and the skills and the abilities that people need to perform well in their jobs. And I also do a lot of research into statistical methods and machine learning methods to make more accurate predictions, which is why I uh, do a lot of work in workforce analytics. And of course, as I kind of briefly mentioned in the intro, we, we worked together at IBM for a, for a few years with both part of the, of the Smarter Workforce Institute. And I had the, the pleasure of taking some of the research that, that you and Sherry did out into the, uh, into the, into the external market. And, and during that time, obviously, with, with Sherry and, and Jonathan Farrar, you, you um, co-authored The Power of People. And, you know, it's five years since the, the book was published, or nearly five years since the book was published. And it, I thought just 
given that a lot of the people that listen to the show are either working in or interested in people analytics, you know, what do you see as the main difference in, in people analytics now versus 2017 when the book was published? Sure. So when I have a look at that book, I think that what it did well was it talked about more the social side of people analytics. How do you set up the function? How do you, um, you know, build a team? How do you identify the skills? And I think that what we're seeing now is a much heavier focus on the analytics itself. So how do you... Uh, make sure you have the right data. How do you clean the right data? How do you try different machine learning and statistical methods? You know, and there is a lot of talk in that book when I look back on it, David, about um, storytelling and influencing. And I think that that caught on a little bit more than I would have liked it to have caught on. I think that when I have a look at a lot of the storytelling and influencing, that was probably already happening in HR before analytics. And I don't think you need analytics to do it, what I think you do need is much more rigorous analysis, much more uh, so that you're a lot more confident in your conclusions. And when the um, conclusions aren't rigorous, I think we need to temper the influencing and dial back the storytelling a little bit. So I think I'm starting to see a little bit of that kind of thinking catch on and the bigger organizations, at least, you know, the banks, the technology companies, the pharma companies, the outfits that have those sort of um, high-end technical capabilities. Yeah, and certainly over during the course of that five years, obviously we're both closely connected to the field. Um, you know, we've seen the, the explosion of, of, of growth in, in people analytics teams in organisations that had people analytics teams back in 2017, and obviously the emergence of people analytics teams in organisations that didn't have people analytics teams in, in 2017. So the field as you said, is, is getting more sophisticated around some of the analytical methods. It's looking at, you mentioned machine learning, which is obviously an area that, that, that you've done a lot of research on. I think we'll pull that out later in our conversation when we talk around skills identification, perhaps, and, 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 and you know, using skills as perhaps um, something to build a lot of talent management practices on um, yeah. moving forward. But but what I'm really interested to talk to you to start off with, Nigel, is you know around organisational behaviour and and some of the work that you that, that you do. You know, how has the field of of organisational behaviour evolved over the last few years? You know, and what do you see as some of the the key opportunities um, in this area? So I think that the with respect to analytics, how I'm I'm starting to see it evolve is. Uh, I think one of the big mistakes you can make when you're in uh, HR analytics, you're a team in an organization, is starting from scratch, you know, just building the models, trying to identify what do I think the causes of engagement are or what do I think the causes of attrition might be. And then, you know, you just start from scratch. You have a chat to people in your organization. Actually, in the literature, it is full of research on what those drivers are going to be going back 40, 50 years. So, you know, you're in a much stronger position if you start there, you start yeah. identifying the variables there, and then you check whether that holds in your organization. So I think that that really needs to be um, the trend. And as it relates to uh, organizational behavior and HR analytics, the big kind of developments I'm seeing are a heavier focus on some of the psychological attributes that are required for performance. So what we used to see was that... Uh, People would recruit against these knowledge and skills and abilities and psychological attributes that are needed, and then they would forget about it, you know, and it's just in a folder somewhere and uh, maybe in a, yeah, maybe in a paper folder, but, you know, it's not kind of integrated into how we uh, have development plans for those individuals post-hire, how we uh, work out what we might 
how we might move those people around the organizations to be uh, better for them and better for the organization when you're starting to see these self-forming teams and agile working environments. Some of this information is really, really important. And the next kind of change that I'm starting to see is rather than that just happening um, on the individual level, so David gets hired, Nigel gets hired, Nigel's performance, David's performance, we're seeing aggregates of those kind of capabilities. So, you know, team level personalities and um, team level capabilities and those linking to unit level outcomes like, uh, you know, uh, business unit outcomes, even up to organizational outcomes like stock market indices, accounting indices and these sorts of things. So there's a lot more, it's a more holistic approach to the analytics that's happening now. And I guess in terms of if you can understand drivers of team performance and you can help affect that, you're going to have a bigger impact than just looking at individuals. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are there are some um, there are some jobs where you know the individual uh, matters. It really matters, right? When you get up to those higher levels, the upper echelons of the the organizations. But ultimately, what we want to do is uh, have um, strong firm performance. We want to see strong firm performance and uh, employee well being and satisfaction and career advancement. But it's that kind of aggregated level that we're really driving towards with HR analytics. And obviously. Two of the big disruptors, you know, technology clearly is, is one and increasingly has been one way before the pandemic. But obviously the pandemic has been a big disruptor for the last two years. How do you see that having an impact on, on organisational behaviour? Yeah, well, there are some kind of challenges that um, organisational behaviour needs to start looking at, like a bigger focus on how we manage hybrid, how we manage hybrid working environments, how we manage people when they're, you know, they're not, we're not co-located. How do we get the benefits of being co-located while still being safe? These are some of the things that we're starting to see in the pandemic. And there are actually, you know, a number of uh, articles coming out in the technical and the academic literature looking at that. And one thing that I'd recommend that everybody do, all HR analytics directors is, and it's easy to do, is just sign up to the table of contents of those top journals and then you just get it fed into your um, you just get it fed into your uh, inbox what the kind of interesting studies what the kind of interesting findings are and uh, those those journals cost a fortune to actually subscribe to but the table of contents are free so I think there's yeah. a lot of useful information in there for HR analytics practitioners and, and back to the initial point you were making around that there's so much research that's been done on as you said things like causes of attrition causes of high or low engagement etc there's so much to learn isn't there from from what's already been researched over the last 40 to 50 years as you said and you know so as a people analytics leader or people analytics practitioner it's important to have that you know take that sometimes take that outside um uh, outside view in before you just start as you said just just focusing on doing it within your own organization yes you've got to check obviously that what's been researched, you know, and, and what findings have been found do apply to your organisation. But I'm guessing if it's been done for 40 or 50 years, it's likely that it, it will to, to a greater or lesser degree. It's a very key point, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is a key point. And I mean, there is, um, there are there are two schools of thought in, in this, in the, in the scientific literature, the organisational sciences. And one is that anytime you study the same thing, across different organizations and you get different results. So so you say the cause of attrition over here is salary, but the cause of attrition over here is, uh, you know, job dissatisfaction. 
They say anytime you see differences across organizations, the reasons really are there's something wrong with the analysis. It's like uh, low sample sizes. It's uh, unreliable measures, you know, these kinds of, uh, or it's range restriction, you know. Um, and what they, what they actually say is you should just trust the, the research. So I'm not quite there. I don't quite think that I would do that. But I certainly would start with, well, these appear to be the drivers of attrition across most organizations. Let's have, let's, that's our kind of field where we'll start. Yeah. Now let's explore how that applies in our, in our own organization here. And of course, at the moment, we're seeing quite a lot of headlines around um, the great attrition or great resignation, whatever you want to call it, you know, and, and, and I'd love to hear your view on the, as a, as an, you know, IO psychologist that a, a lot of these um, sample sizes seem to be quite small. And B, are they're, they're, they're focused on intent rather than action. And I'd love to hear your, your comment around that and, and maybe for our listeners explaining that difference between intent and action. When So when we when we look at that intent versus, versus outcome, we call it a turnover intention. So, and when we talk about turnover intentions, that's there is a continuum of withdrawal from the organization. So when things are starting to not be quite the way that we want them to be at work, we are... Uh, we might just start turning up late, first of all, you know, and then we might just start getting slow to respond to emails and not volunteering and helping out. And then um, we start taking sick leave. And then the next thing I'm looking at jobs, right? I'm looking at jobs on my, um, on my phone. So that, that intention, I think it is something that we need to take seriously. But yeah, it's not quite the same thing as uh, everybody actually having left their job roles. But uh, intention is often something we do try to focus on uh, in uh, IO psychology capacities because that's something that we can influence. So that intention, we can change that intention. But when the person is actually out the door, it's too late. You know, So sometimes yeah. focusing on that one step before, that attitude, that feeling that something's wrong is not such a bad place to, not such a bad place to be. Well, we're going to talk about some of your current research now. So love to hear about that. You know, what, what are you currently working on? Currently, I am uh, working in a few different areas. The first one is with, with Podium, which is an, uh, an assessment business. And there I um, have been designing psychological assessments that predict work outcomes. And those work outcomes are uh, what we call task performance. So that's the quality of work that's done, the quantity of work that's done, whether the work's done on time, whether it meets the needs of your stakeholders. Also, uh, what we call citizenship behaviors. And these citizenship behaviors is things like um, volunteering for extra work when, you know, you know when it, it's not formally in your job description, but if everybody did this around here, it would be a good place to work. So we try to predict the people who are going to be like that. And we also have um, assessments that build, you know, predict those withdrawal uh, behaviors that we just talked about, which is uh, the turnover intentions, um, doing uh, a bit of work still in the, like we were at IBM in the artificial intelligence uh, space, particularly around bias, which is such a, um, such a hot topic. And uh, with the, with the bias, it's an interesting, it's an interesting one. There are different, uh, approaches to first of all, there is a lot of is a lack of clarity around definitions of what people mean by bias. So, when you just talk to the lay people, you talk to people in the media, um, or you talk to 
you know, popular accounts of bias. That just means whether there are differences in selection rates. So maybe women will get selected less than men and uh, black people will get selected less than white people and, and, and that's considered bias. And yeah, you shouldn't have, uh, there, are, there are kind of formal rules that say what's acceptable and what's not acceptable there. In the psychological literature, bias actually instead means does this assessment or does this tool predict in exactly the same way for all groups? So you yeah. can actually have, a tool that predicts in exactly the same way for all groups, and we say it's not biased, but you could still have that impact there. And there are two adverse impact against one of those groups. So there are ways that you can fix that. Well, you, there are ways that you can address that in your selection system. And there is a computer science school of thought, and there is a psychology school of thought. And the psychology school of thought is, let's measure something different. So maybe if we're seeing some differences on one kind of predictor. Maybe that predictor is not one we'll use. We'll use a different kind of predictor. But the computer scientists are much more uh, adventurous with their methods, and they will actually go in and they'll uh, they they even have, they call it data massaging. You know, so they'll massage the uh, the data just so that when they make the prediction, it's fair. And um, when I first saw some of those things, I just fell over backwards. I I could not. Um, believe that this kind of thing was happening, but now I'm kind of warmed up to it a little bit more. But what I would say is when you're working on bias, trying to reduce adverse impact, and if you've got computer scientists in there, put a psychologist in there or an HR professional, an HR professional, because the, the HR professionals, they're just aware of what you can and can't do. And sometimes I've seen people, you know, the computer scientists try things and I'm, you know, quite surprised. And I know that just you know, the, the regular HR person with a little bit of exposure would never try it. So I think you have to bring those two different yeah. schools together. Which makes a lot of sense. And, and and going back to the power of people, I guess you talked about, you know, a people analytics team, you know, one of the six areas or skills that you looked at was IO psychology. And, and, and then another area was, was HR background, wasn't it? Yeah, so you, it definitely was... need, you definitely need um, all of those skill sets uh, in the team or, you know, or somebody that can cover cover a few of those because I guess I don't know what what are you seeing as the size of organizational I mean of HR analytics teams now if you take reporting to one side because I think in the book there we were saying that it was I think it was you know maybe six to ten and back yeah. in 2017. Well we see we're definitely seeing that grow I mean in some of the companies as I'm sure you know you know particularly one we may have worked in um, you know the, you, you're looking at 70 plus and you know in, in some yeah. com in some companies and it's difficult to compare apples with apples because, as you said, some include reporting, some don't um, mm. as, as part of those teams. Um, I'm guessing the reporting is, well, I know the reporting is getting more and more automated now, so you, you potentially need less people um, uh, to do that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in the companies we're looking at, I, I, I can't think, I know when we, we studied this in 2020, the average size of the 60 or so companies that we looked at who were all sort of 10,000 employees or more was 14 yeah um, so it's growing which i guess is isn't you know because these teams are starting to have more and more of an impact positive impact mm -hmm. both on workforce outcomes but also business outcomes um you know and i think particularly it's almost that the pandemic has helped elevate these teams in, in in many organizations as well because of the work they're doing because of particularly when it's when it's connected to employee listening and understanding how employees are feel about suddenly being remote or um, you know, managers are feeling about having to manage a completely a team that's completely, uh, uh, you know, they don't see every day. So it's, it, there's lots of 
lots of reasons for it. But I think potentially it's mainly because it's it's having an impact. It's a, it's it's, a, it's impacting on outcomes, which which is what what you, Jonathan Cherry, were writing about five years ago about setting yourself up to do that. And um, one of the areas where we are seeing it growing, and I know an area that that, that you've worked at a lot, you know, is a uh, is you know, and there's a lot of interest is around skills identification. Um, and building a skills ontology across uh, many organisations. You know, what advice would you give to organisations looking to do this based on based on your research? The biggest lesson is similar to that um, one about not starting from scratch. I mean, there are there are so many skills ontologies uh, out of uh, out there today. I mean, ONET ONET is the the big one that a lot of people will be familiar with from the U.S. Department of Labor. Maybe that is a little too uh, U.S. focused for some organizations, but there is also there are also European uh, taxonomies. You know, there are also European uh, skill taxonomies uh, available from the the European Union. So you just have to have a look at what kind of skills framework that you're going to that you're going to use, and then you need um, the big challenge is to embed it in all of the different HR processes that that you know start from the kind of attraction of the candidates so you need to somehow communicate the you know knowledge and the skills that are going to be required in those job ads but then you really want alignment across all of the other processes so what you communicate at that point of the person coming in is what you kind of develop the person against train the people against um uh you know reward the people against performance manage the people against and that's the kind of thing that uh I think that yeah, you need to uh, you need to work very hard on to get that well embedded and well embedded in the organization, particularly in large organizations and organizations where there's been a lot of M and A activity and everybody. You got so many different competing frameworks and models. I think that the big the big challenge is standardization and rationalization. Um, yeah. There, one of the one of the things that quite impressed me uh, when I was at I, IBM with you was uh, their framework for uh, changing organizational skills, for strategic change. So what they managed to do was identify the skills that are required for where the business needs to be, you know, five years, 10 years out. And then they communicate that to every employee in the uh, organization. And then they offer all different forms of learning and learning management systems, and they tag them with the skills so that the employees know the skills that they've got to learn. And then there is a dashboard for the senior level kind of HR execs and they can log in and they can watch the the organization transforming its skills as more and more people enroll. You know, they can see the number of people that have enrolled in um, different courses, the number of completions, the number of dropouts. So that kind of strategic use of, uh, of skilling, I think, is really powerful. And and obviously, IBM's one organisation. There are others that are, that are using machine learning to really help. I guess you could call industrialize or scale skills identification. Um, again, I'm not sure if you've done a lot of research around that. But again, what would you advise companies around that? Obviously, as you said, having that common um, language, I guess, across all the, the talent management practices is one. But what any other advice? Yeah. So the um the the way that a lot of those uh machine learning methods are doing is uh, doing it now as they're inferring the skills from like the digital exhaust we call it that you leave as you go about your work so maybe in a public slack channel 
you've kind of like answered some questions that show that you have, you know, some skills in a particular database technology or there's something on a corporate intranet or maybe there's something on GitHub, you know, or these different sources and uh, these kind of crawlers can can gather that information and pass that information and score that information and, you know, tag you as an employee inside the organization as having those skills. I think that what it is is a a decent starting point, but it's certainly not the end point, you know, because um, I think that there are uh, people who have all sorts of skills, but are, you know, they're just not the people who kind of are showy about it and, and putting it in all of those public places. And some people are really good at putting it in all those public places. So what you really need to do is maybe use that machine learning to start off to build your map of the people and the skills, but then let everybody update it. So then, you know, say this is what we think we've discovered, you know, about capabilities just from the machine learning. Can you go in there and update it and add any new, uh, add any new evidence in there? And I think that that is a more uh, inclusive and, you know, likely higher quality result at the end of the day. And I guess that machine learning gives you that start because, you know, We've seen, you know, when you just go out to employees and, and, and ask them for their skills and you, you've got, you're basically doing it from a standing start. The machine learning gives you quite a big starting point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, re- it, re- it really can, you know, give you a give you a, a good starting point. And then you have to, um, I guess the other big concerns, and you and I wrote a paper about it, is the privacy side of things, isn't it? Yeah. Um, where, uh, you know, if you're going out to, external websites you have to be careful that these are these are only professional websites right you don't want to be scraping anything social that's not um it's not work related or you don't have the you don't have the consent to do and i and i guess and again we talked about this in in that paper and and, and some of the other stuff that you were involved in at, 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 at the smarter workforce institute you know having that clear value for the for the employee and ultimately understanding their skills and helping them uh, with uh, adjacent learning or, or career opportunities within the organization and mobility you can as long as you communicate that properly you can see that there's a clear benefit potentially for, for employees if you do that well and do it right yeah and, and that's right and I, I think that people are more willing to share information if they believe that they're going to get something beneficial uh, in return for it, so making it clear. I think as yeah, transparency as well. You know, that's this is another big thing. Um, you don't want yeah, tell everybody that you're going to be doing it, and maybe give everybody the opportunity to update any information in those sorts of repositories, before, like um, maybe like LinkedIn, like GitHub, like Slack, any of these kind of you know corporate intranets and that sort of thing before you um, before you do all of the data collection that might be a way to go yeah yeah agreed when we come back in just a moment nigel talks about the value that behavioral science can bring to people analytics hr and the organization this series of the digital hr leaders podcast is sponsored by iPsychTech. their culture scope cloud application is one of the most advanced and scientific approaches to culture and behavioral measurement to drive performance and manage risk throughout organizations. Their diagnostic methods are innovative, simple, accurate, and very efficient. What's really unique is that CultureScope applies behavioral data science to your specific organizational key performance metrics 
allowing for the diagnosis and recommendations of specific actionable insights to make a sustainable difference. Using forward-looking predictive neural intelligence, CultureScope is able to recommend simple solutions to difficult problems and can provide a clear roadmap for culture implementation to maximize your impact and brand value. To find out more, head over to iPsychTech.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast with Nigel Gunnell, Director of Research and Ethics for the Institute of Management at Goldsmiths. University of London. Now back to the conversation. So next question is going to I'm going to ask it on three levels. Um, what what value does behavioural science bring? One to people analytics, two to HR, and three to the organisation. Sure. So on the um, uh, the first one is uh, individual level, right? People analytics, people analytics, HR, and the organisation. Yeah. So for um, for people analytics, it just helps you reach accurate conclusions you know come to the best decision you know rather than erroneous conclusions and uh results that don't make sense that's that's what it uh that's what it essentially does and uh it it can do that really really well if you start from you know defining your research question do a little bit of a literature review google scholar is the other thing that people might not use but google scholar is really good I mean, um, a lot of that stuff is uh, open access now. So it's really powerful and it can help you just frame the sort of analysis that you're going to do. You know, the, the, even some of the storytelling and influencing, the, the, the writers are doing that in their papers as well because they have to convince the readers and the reviewers. So that's a really good um, resource to help you get to the right conclusions. And um, for HR analytics... Uh, what behavioral science? Yeah, I think that uh, the the analytics without the behavior is not really HR analytics. I think that it's a pretty important uh, component. And for yeah. uh, HR analytics, I think it can just help elevate the discipline. You know, it can elevate the discipline if you get um, the right kind of messaging coming out. You can get. I don't know what you're seeing around the um, where the director of analytics is reporting these days. I think at the time it was mostly into the uh, the CHRO, um, but it, I think it can help that they get it can help them to report into the uh, CEO uh, more often. So I think that it can elevate the discipline and just uh, make it. Uh, have more of a serious impact and the same i don't want to go this far but look how seriously we took all of the scientists in covid you know i think that if we kind of really major on the behavioral science and hr analytics it will just kind of elevate the messaging that that we have there and um on an organizational level yeah it can certainly help drive organizational performance there is uh there is no doubt that if you set that up right, you can show uh, empirically, statistically, that these uh, approaches, when you implement them well, um, lead to uh, greater organizational effectiveness. And for that, David, I think that what you really want to uh, be showing is causal inference. So I think that I've kind of, I'm uh, talking to a lot of people about 
whether we can really uh, make causal claims on the basis of our HR analytics analyses. And I think for a lot of the analyses we do, you can't. But we really yeah. need to change that. There is a massive demand for it. That's what the business needs. But I think that that is a skill shortage area as well, this causal inference area. So that's what I would be hoping to see in the coming kind of five years, three to five years from uh, HR analytics. Okay, quick follow-up. One around reporting lines. Um, we are seeing an increase in heads of people analysis reporting directly to the CHRO. Um, in the research we did last year, this is for listeners as much as as, as well, is it, I think it was 22% report direct to the CHRO. And then over just over 75% either report direct to the CHRO or to um, someone, someone on the HR leadership team. And that 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 is trending upwards. So I think, as you said, you know, really important. If I was a CHRO, I'd want my head of people analytics reporting into me for the reasons yeah. that you gave. Um, and then the, the second thing around trying to show causal influence you know what are some of the tips that you would give to heads of people analytics i guess and other senior hr leaders around how to how to measure that the big thing is it's research design so it's not any kind of statistical analysis it's not any kind of machine learning analysis but it's research design so and research design um for me is you know questions like uh, where am I going to collect the data? How am I going to collect the data? When am I going to collect the data? Not what analysis am I going to do on the data? And if yeah. you can answer those questions well about, you know, what data will I collect, you know, and where will I make an intervention and you get the timing right, you can start to make those causal claims. I mean, the strongest approach that you can do is these controlled trials like they do in medicine, but we are, we're not um, in medicine and we can rarely... Uh, just randomize people to different conditions, but there are um, there are techniques that the econometricians use and the epidemiologists all use, and we can start to borrow those and bring those into um, start to bring those into HR analytics. And I, I I'm expecting that that's gonna. I, I've seen a couple of papers and uh, in review processes starting to talk about that topic. So I think it's going to emerge as a hot one. So it could be one for us to talk about on the. Second time oh, yeah. we did the podcast, yeah. <laughs> um, and what it, you know, so then obviously a lot of the, the the way you get to this is through having this behavioral science capability within within your organisation. You know, what what's your advice for, for companies that that are looking to build this capability in behavioral science or organisational capability, sorry, organisational psychology? How can they do this? The easy the the easy way. I mean, one way is to to hire an organisational psychologist. You know, to have that as one of the the roles in the team. And, you know, if you've got a small team, maybe that organizational psychologist can double as the, the kind of analytic, the analytics person. I think that the modern uh, IO psychologist is not just good on the theory, but they're also quite strong on the, the analytics. You know, they'll hold their own in those kind of conversations with pretty much anybody. So I would, um, I would hire that. And, you know, when you're hiring, just look for somebody who's hungry for it, you know, that has the, passion for it. I think you can spot it. You know, it's the people who are uh, always uh, thinking about that topic, familiar with the latest research topics, you know. Um, so that's what I would do, hire one in. And and actually, I mean, even if we go back to the power of the people, two, two of the people you interviewed who were people analytics leaders at the time, got bigger roles now. Alexis Fink, 
um, and Thomas Absolutely. Rasmus and both IO psychologists both really are seen as two of the leading lights in our field. So, you know, they it goes all the way out to, are. yeah, yeah. So really interesting. And I guess another way you can do it if you're a smaller organization is maybe buy some of that expertise in as and when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there are there are many um there are smaller kind of consultancies doing that kind of work and there are many independent um IO psychologists. So you can kind of bring them in on shorter term contracts to to do that sort of work. And then the the thing that um Insight two 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 is doing all of that information sharing and all of that networking. So identify the kind of any IO psych people in that network and befriend them, you know, and Find out what they're doing in their organization. Thanks for mentioning Insight 222. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Nigel as he breaks down the skill set of an organizational psychologist. Can we break the the, the IO psychology skill set down a little bit further? You know, what skills can people develop without professional retraining and and when does becoming an accredited psychologist really become necessary? Yeah, so I would say that the analytical side that a lot of industrial organizational psychologists um, do, you you can learn that. You can learn that through, uh, there's incredible learning available on Coursera, edX, um, you know, these, diff- you know, Khan Academy, these different MOOCs courses and the, the MOOCs, the, the massively, what is it, online, uh, don't even know the acronym, David. So Massive uh, Open uh, Online Courses, is that yeah, possible? Courses. Yeah, there is uh, incredible courses on Python and, and, and this kind of thing. So on the analytics front, I would say that you can do all of that. The, the, there is a lot of knowledge um, on the more psychological side that might be harder to kind of acquire, but you still can acquire it. I'd say that the the component that it's really Im- important to almost learn more formally is the kind of ethical responsibility of what it means to be a psychologist and what it means to make a decision about a person and you know the things like the information you should be sharing about your decision this procedural fairness and you know justice and all of this kind of approach you know the, there is a qualification that you need to have in the the UK at least from the health and care professions society so you can't just call yourself like an occupational psychologist here yeah. in the UK, it's a protected title. But you can learn a lot of that kind of um, you can learn a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but just don't get into anything that's too. Yeah, you just got to learn where your boundaries are, your professional boundaries. Like what what do I know, what don't I know? So my professional boundary, for instance, is I do a lot of um, work in measurement of maladaptive personality, but I would never touch clinical psychology because this is not a specialism for me yeah yeah that makes sense 
Um, and as you said, there is increasingly courses available online and some of them are free. Some of them are not very expensive. So as you said, you can certainly pick up some of those analytical skills that a psychologist particularly possess, you know, usually possesses or should possess. So, uh, so yeah, very interesting. So, Nigel, unfortunately, we've got to the last question now. Um, and, um, by, you know, obviously, we'll talk about the conversation at, at the end. But this is a question we're asking everyone on this series. You know, how does behavioural science help to improve the workplace? Yeah, so um, I'd say we've, we've talked about uh, how it improves firm performance, you know, um, and and I think that that's pretty clear. The, the, one of the big contributions that it can make to improving the workplace, if I you know interpret that a little more broadly, is just by helping make work more meaningful. Yeah. You know, helping the the work become more meaningful for employees by you know ensuring everybody is healthy and so far as possible uh, enjoying work. And we know a lot about what those things are from different models like different stress models like uh, what are the what are the causes of stress and how can we ameliorate or mitigate those causes of stress we know a lot about how to design jobs so that people find the jobs uh, enjoyable or manageable and I think that uh, it can help uh, we're, we're in a we, we seem to be in a bit of a sweet spot David where um, if I can call it that where we, we had what we called Taylorism you know, back in the early 1900s, where they used a lot of uh, new technology to, to instead of us going to work, they um, they the work came to people, and they just made us work as hard and as fast as we could, and it was not a lot of fun. And then people worked out that people got sick because of that, and they weren't as productive as they might be if we designed jobs more effectively. So now we're in this place where for some jobs are dangerous jobs and not fun jobs, but you know, for yeah. a lot of the white collar jobs, they're not um, too bad compared to where they are historically. But the risk is with machine learning, where we're just chopping up the jobs into these little pieces and taking them away from people and the humans do what's left. It is, we're at the risk of, um, you know, the meaning disappearing from work. And I think that some of the, the organizational uh, behavior theories can help us design the jobs that include artificial intelligence and machine learning so that they're still rewarding you know because we spend a lot of time doing this don't we we do we do spend a long time doing this. most of our time in fact apart from probably yeah. being a probably being asleep and some of us spend more time working than we do being asleep so uh so yeah and, and nigel there was one question that i i i erroneously missed um you know and i know it's one that i think our listeners would would love to hear your thoughts on it do you have any examples of companies who are building capability in behavioral science particularly well that, that you're able to share? Let me have a think. I really only know the, uh, the, the big ones. There is a, there is a uh, uh, IBM and, and these kinds of companies, but one is um, Ezra. So Ezra is a coaching company uh, that, that's doing some pretty remarkable things, and I'm doing some work on those guys, and they have some great analytical capability internally where they're uh, looking at the impact of uh, they're looking at the impact of uh, coaching on individual performance but also organizational performance and they've got some great methods for studying change in there you know and as you said linking that back to meaningful work you know there's there's a lot of studies out there that showing that, that how that has such an impact on people's performance that as you said their health 
their engagement, their productivity. So it's actually it's actually a really important thing. This whole concept of, of, of meaningful work. Absolutely, yeah. It's the topic. It's the big topic of the of the of the coming years. You know, how do we retain that meaning in work while integrating technology? What's technology, that blend yeah. going to be of uh, of the technology and the human? Well, that's a great place to, to end our conversation, Nigel. As ever, always enjoy uh, talking to you. You know, thanks for being a guest on the, on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. How can people find out more about about you, uh, follow you on social media and find out more about your work? Yeah, so LinkedIn is the best way. LinkedIn is the best way to kind of get in touch. Love to hear from um, people. I'm always curious about what people are up to and learn a lot when I talk to them. Well, Nigel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, David. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. Tune in next week for episode three of series 20, where I'll be joined by Hani Nabil, Chief Behavioral Scientist at iPsychTech. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.